Hello and welcome to episode 62 of the Beat Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidem Yologde. On this episode, I'll be presenting surprising findings from an academic paper that was published back in July about how cyberbullying changed during the pandemic, as well as what to expect as students return to classrooms after months of online schooling. I'll also be analyzing how schools and community leaders plan to tackle racism from both in-person and online perspectives as students return to school. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. At the start of the pandemic, many child welfare advocates worried that the massive shift to remote learning would spur an increase in cyberbullying. New research from Boston University, however, indicates that virtual learning may have had precisely the opposite effect. So this research um, was conducted by Boston University professors Andrew Backer Hicks, Joshua Goodman, Jennifer Grief Green, and Melissa Holt, and it was published on Wednesday, July 7, 2021. This um, paper showed that the rate of cyberbullying as measured by the frequency of online searches for bullying-related terms actually dropped during the pandemic. So I'll post a link to that research paper in the show notes. So the authors used Google search trends to track the rate of bullying and cyberbullying during the pandemic. So by linking historical search popularity for those two terms with survey responses from a youth risk behavior survey that was done by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, they found clear evidence that increases in internet searches for bullying historically predicted higher reported rates of bullying, both in school and online. So overall, between March 2020 and February 2021, that was the time period when the majority of students in the U.S. were learning remotely. The rate at which internet users searched for school bullying dropped 33% below pre-pandemic levels, and the rate at which they searched for cyberbullying dropped 20%. According to data from the CDC, one in five youth report being bullied in school each year, and one in six report being bullied online. For students involved in bullying, whether as a victim, as an aggressor, or even just as a witness, rates of mental health problems are higher, school attendance is lower, and students are less likely to feel safe. A large amount of research has shown that bullying is associated with a range of mental and physical consequences, including anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Some studies even show that bullying has long-run physical, mental, and economic effects that persist after the bullying has stopped well into adulthood. So amid reports of young people's academic struggles and social isolation while learning remotely during the pandemic, the drop in bullying rates represents an unexpected benefit for students whose departure from physical classrooms also meant a respite from their peers' abuse. So back in the spring of this past school year, earlier this year, when more students returned to classrooms in person, rates of bullying both in schools and online rose back up, but not all the way to pre-pandemic levels. So this checks out with the analysis that even where schools had fully reopened, not all students actually chose to attend in person. A separate research, also published back in July, clarifies that school bullying can have especially negative effects on youth of color who also hold other identities such as gender, sexual orientation, income level, religion, disability, or immigration status 
that target them for marginalization. The Boston University professors presented multiple hypotheses for the reduction in online bullying. First, prior research indicates that in-person bullying may actually drive online bullying. Therefore, drops in in-person bullying could directly spur drops in online bullying. As a matter of fact, many of the same students who are involved in cyberbullying are also involved with in-person bullying. So therefore, if in-person bullying stops, then maybe cyberbullying would also decrease. A second hypothesis is that the additional time that young people are spending online over the past year, usually on Zoom or Google Classroom, was more structured and had more adult oversight than other forms of screen time. Studies show that when young people spend more time on social media, it is often tied to increasing rates of cyberbullying. But another body of research clarifies that bullying tends to take place during unstructured time at school, such as during passing periods or recess. So earlier in this um, podcast, um, I think in the first 10 episodes, I talked about cyberbullying, and that was also around the time of the, the shootings in Atlanta back in March, and how a lot of bullying was seen around that time, targeted especially against um, Asian Americans, especially on Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook. So all of those happened on social media. So this doesn't mean that schools should indiscriminately clamp down on all forms of unstructured time during school hours. Rather, schools should work to create optional teacher-led activities at lunch and recess for students looking to avoid unsupervised activities with their peers. Moreover, different students have different needs in terms of social skills development and the extent to which they benefit from having adult oversight. So to wrap, the, to wrap up this segment on cyberbullying, a key question now in everyone's minds as schools plan to reopen fully in person this fall is that moving forward, what are the lessons that we can part with that would be most helpful in terms of what schools will look like in the future? A lot of research on the educational effect of COVID-19 has focused on negative consequences, such as learning loss, declines in student achievement, and general anxiety for both students and parents. As much as it is important that we document this harmful effect, the study from the Boston University professors also suggests that there are at least some aspects of student learning experiences that may have improved as a direct consequence of the pandemic. So by highlighting the decrease in pandemic-era bullying, we will be able to see the shift to remote learning as not entirely harmful. And in the same vein, there might also be other benefits to take away from this shift that may not be readily obvious. So on the other side of the coin, many K-12 students and community organizations are pushing schools to take a more proactive approach to address incidents of racism in schools as the new academic year begins. Stop AAPI Hate, a national nonprofit organization that collects and analyzes hate incidents against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, will soon release a report that pulled from interviews with over 1,100 youths across the country. Interns with that organization, made up of 100 high school students, found that more than 70% of Asian American and Pacific Islander students across the country experienced racism in the past year alone. The interns also found that cyberbullying made up three quarters of all incidents that were reported and verbal harassment and name calling made up one third. The interns reported that a lot of the people they interviewed experienced racism on TikTok and Instagram 
and there were a lot of racist jokes and comments about people's dietary habits. In line with the results of the Boston University research that I started the episode with, Russell Jung, um, the co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate, said the surge in cyberbullying is a more recent development. He said that because students were in school virtually last year, the, the rates of direct racism might be suppressed, but they are spending a lot of time on screen, which where they experience secondhand or indirect racism. At the same time, he said the clips of violent attacks against Asian elders and the coverage of the Atlanta shootings that happened on Tuesday, March 16, 2021, have galvanized a lot of young people into action. According to him, twice as many students applied to the Stop AAPI Hate Internship Program this year compared to last year. Research and advocacy work from youth activists and community groups have yielded considerable progress in recent months. In July, after months of campaigning from the nonprofit Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, the state of Illinois become, became the first state to require public schools to teach a unit of Asian American history. In a broader measure, Democratic Congresswoman Grace Meng from New York introduced legislation to incorporate Asian American studies in public school curriculum nationwide. The nonprofit Act to Change enlisted Tan France, who is a British American fashion designer, TV personality, and author, who also stayed in Queer High and is of Pakistani descent, to lead interactive workshops at a handful of high schools with the goal of teaching students to become active anti-bullying advocates on campus. According to a survey that the group conducted back in May, 80% of more than 300 AAPI youths said they experienced cyberbullying either in person or online. The group is also working on providing teachers with culturally sensitive resources to address anti-Asian racism. Less than 40% of students who reported being bullied said they told an adult about it, and most of them didn't feel that doing so would make a difference. Teachers are often the point of safety for students in the classroom, and it is important for teachers to be able to recognize the different ways that bullying presents itself, and how bullying around cultural context might, might take place in order to completely eradicate bullying in classrooms and schoolyards. So the findings from the Stop AAPI Youth Campaign support calls for greater and stronger intervention from educators. About 81% of AAPI students who experienced bullying say they have some form of mental health services at school, but less than one quarter said they were satisfied with the available treatments and only 15% report actually using them. So Sumi Okazaki, who is a professor of counseling psychology at New York University, said schools should provide more implicit bias and cultural sensitivity training for teachers and counselors so that they can be better equipped to address the concerns of non-white students and also recognize the hurt that jokes or microaggressions can cause. She added that seeking help can be especially hard for immigrant children whose parents don't want them exposing psychological issues to people who are not members of their family. Such cultural barriers therefore put the responsibility to normalize talking about mental health issues on schools. Last year, the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, created an anti-bias lesson plan for K-12 educators called Coronavirus and Infectious Racism. To date, the group has implemented the program at more than 1,600 schools nationwide 
and um, Annie Ortega Long, who is the educa education director for ADL's Western Division, said a big challenge facing anti-bias education is the conservative political rights cultural war on critical race theory and the resulting legislation that restricts discussions centered on race. She said school boards are constantly grappling with how to communicate with parents who are concerned about how students are being taught about controversial issues, noting that there is a widespread misinformation campaign about what constitutes anti-bias training. For the youth activist of Stop AAPI8, Russell Jung um, said the goal for this fall is to mobilize local communities to implement ethnic studies requirements, lead workshops at conferences such as the Changemaker Summit in October, and generate awareness about their findings on social media. Some student interns at Stop AAPI Hate have been working directly with leaders in their school districts to bring about policy changes. Earlier this year, Megan Chan, a senior in the Greater Los Angeles area, participated in a virtual roundtable that was hosted by the California Department of Education and Tony Thurmond, the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. Megan said her peers shared a bunch of recommendations for local schools, such as training diverse staff who can understand the needs of non-white students, providing culturally competent mental health services, establishing affinity groups, and developing a structured ethnic studies course so that students can avoid repeating the mistakes from history and also develop critical thinking skills along the way. So that's all I have for this episode of The Beat Picture. The production, editing, fact-checking, audio engineering, and graphic design were done by yours truly, Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can all learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you follow, download, or subscribe to The Beat Picture Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share the show with anyone that you think might benefit from it. For questions, comments, or any suggestions, please send an email to bdme at thebeatpicture.com. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at BeatPicture, as well as on the Clubhouse app at BID. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.